We are still working through 1 Corinthians 13, like one word at a time, uh, is how it's been the last couple of weeks at least. And uh, we're, we're, we're in this chapter on love. It's a, it's, a, it's a missing piece of the puzzle in the church in Corinth. And uh, verses 1 to 3 in 1 Corinthians 13 describe the necessity of love in this church. And verses 4 to 7 then talk about what love is. <clears throat> because the church in Corinth needs to grow in it. And so we talked about these two, what I'm going to call the <clears throat> two positive uh, aspects of love. Here's what love is. It is patient and it is kind. And then Paul goes into eight things that love then is not. And we're going to talk about five of them today. Five things that love is not. And these are uh, confrontational. These are things that have been specifically mentioned, at least the, the, the five we're going to look at, these are five things that have specifically been mentioned as something that the Corinthians are exhibiting here in the letter. Specifically talked about each of these things, which means that Paul is in some sense saying that in order for the Corinthians to be loving, they're going to need to stop acting like themselves. It's confrontational. And what I've found is that I've needed to be confronted about these things too in my study of what it means to be patient, what it means to be kind, and what love is not. These are the things that I need to be confronted about, and I suspect you probably need it too, which means that we're in good company with one another because we are going to sense the need for a Savior once again. These things keep us humble. These things remind us of where we need to grow. These things remind us that we, even though we are a people who are to be characterized, Jesus said that, that, that the world will know that you're mine because of your love for one another. And yet, what we're going to find out when we hear what love is not, what we're going to find out is that, oh man, I need to grow. And I need to be saved. And I'm thankful that God has sent a Savior. If these things are happening in our lives, then at that point where it's happening, we're not being loving. And here's how I want to frame these five things. Each of these five unloving actions that we're going to look at in verses 4 and 5, each of them are clearly the result, I'm going to argue, of placing ourselves at the center of our lives. These are five unloving actions that are a result of being self-centered. Five indications that we've put ourselves at the center of our universe. So here's number one indication in the list. This isn't the top indication, but this is number one on the list. The, an indication that you're being self-centered, that I'm being self-centered, is that rather than being loving, I'm exhibiting hostile jealousy. Love does not envy. Envy is the word that we're talking about first. To envy is not merely covetousness. To covet is to desire the success of another person for yourself. I want what you got. Envy goes one step further. It actually has intense negative feelings toward the successful person. 
It not only wants what another person has, but it actually has a hostile desire toward that person because of their achievements. Envy actually seems to desire misfortune for another because they have been successful. Listen to the way that Stephen in his speech in Acts chapter 7 describes the envy of the brothers of Joseph. Stephen is just giving a uh, kind of a run through of Israel's history and he says in in verse 8, Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs, the twelve sons of Jacob, heads of the twelve tribes of Israel. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, same verb as our verb envy, the brothers, jealous of Joseph, sold him into slavery. Joseph, Joseph's brothers had such envy because of Joseph's success that they sold him into slavery. I not only want what you have, but I hate you because you have it. That's the feeling that envy has, these, these, this hostile jealousy. It so strongly desires success for, catch it, self. It so strongly desires success for self that rather than rejoicing in the success of another, it despises the other. It's driven by a self-centeredness, a lust for personal success even at the expense of another. And it was present in the Corinthian church. For example, 1 Corinthians 3.3, You are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy, so here's the noun form of the same word in the same, in the same book. You are, while there is uh, jealousy and strife among you, Paul says, you are not of the, you are, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So notice that earlier in this book where Paul is now saying love does not envy, he has said that you, you Corinthians have been experiencing jealousy, <laughs> jealousy. You have been experiencing jealousy, and then he partners it with strife. Envy and strife. They go hand in hand in Corinth. The lust for personal success is now driving people to go to war with other people. In fact, this is exactly how James describes this enviousness in James 4 2. You are envious and cannot obtain. So, James says, you fight and quarrel. Envy is a self-centered, hostile jealousy. But love does not envy. Because love is free from the tyranny of self. Self is not the dictator of what the loving person does. Number two, second indication that we are living self-centered lives is this. Rather than loving, you're exhibiting self-praise. Verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13, love does not boast. Love does not boast. The one who boasts is simply put, we could translate the, the word a braggart, someone who just brags on themselves. This is, the, this is a, a communication sin. It consists of the attempt to draw attention to ourselves by heaping praise 
upon ourselves. It's the desire for affirmation that has gone wild. In our home, we call it the look at me attitude. The look at me disease. And so we've been spending some time talking as a family about Proverbs 27, verse 2. It goes like this. Let another praise you. I love that. Let another praise you and not your own mouth. A stranger and not your own lips. I think one of the coolest things about watching some of these Christian stars rising in athletics today, Tim Tebow and Jeremy Lin, is that rather than drawing praise to themselves, they're, they're deflecting it to others. People are, are praising these guys, and uh, they're constantly now turning that to build up and encourage their teammates, noting what's commendable, even though everybody knows that these teams are playing better because these guys are playmakers. But they're not heaping praise upon themselves. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? You guys watch some of these interviews? These guys, they're, they're, they're not boastful. Boasting occurs a lot of times in the form of words. But I submit to you that it can also occur uh, in different kinds of actions. We're pretty good at this, actually. I think you can boast with your body language. You can boast with the car that you drive. You could boast with the clothes that you wear. It it happens any time when we're making an attempt to let other people know that I think that my accomplishments are praiseworthy. And I could be doing it because I'm insecure and I want you to think something of me, or it might be because I think I'm the hottest thing on two feet. The motive can come from a number of different places, but in either case, I want you to focus on me, and I want to join you in praising me. So I boast. I have a look-at-me attitude. I do it with my words. I do it with my stories. I do it with my style. It's what Brian Regan sometimes calls the me monster. If you went through the marriage class or our small group, I've shown the me monster video clip where Brian Regan just talks about, hey, we have this incredible ability to just take any story that somebody's telling and as soon as the person's done telling the story, somebody jumps in and says, well, that ain't nothing. And Brian Regan says something like, oh, well, excuse me, I'm sorry for telling my nothing story. We have this incredible ability of trying to find ways to outdo one another. And has anybody else noticed that despite how obvious it is sometimes to see this in another person, and despite the fact that when we do see it, we kind of tend to roll our eyes and go, man, that person's so full of themselves. It's actually very easy to do. It's very easy to do this ourselves. And it was fairly prevalent in the Corinthian church. Chapters 1 and 2, the Corinthians seem to be boasting in their wisdom. They seem to be boasting in their giftedness. Chapter 4, verse 7, they're boasting in their knowledge. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 13, they're boasting in their spirituality. Chapters 2 and 3, chapter 14, verse 37. So boasting, it, it, it may be easy and it may be prevalent, but it's not loving. Because love does not boast. It's not loving to boast because boasting is not attempting to help others. It's not attempting to encourage others. It's not attempting to promote God. It's not attempting to promote the good of the community. It's attempting to promote me. It's attempting to exalt me. But love does not boast because love is free from the tyranny of self. 
Love's actions are not dictated by self, as though self was in control and self is calling the shots. Love, the loving person is free from the dictator of self. Number three, third indication that <laughs> we're growing self-centered. Rather than being loving, we're exhibiting overconfidence. Verse five, love is not, I'm sorry, this is verse four. Love is not arrogant. Love is not arrogant. The word here just means proud or conceited or haughty. It's, it literally means puffed up. Now, arrogance is just a case of self-deception. It's where we, we are esteeming ourselves higher, we're giving ourselves a higher rating than we have merited. Anthony Thistleton says, it's an inflated sense of our own self-importance. An inflated sense of our importance. This is the desire to play a valuable role gone wild. Just out of control. And again, it's something that Paul has already directly addressed in the church. This same verb has been used six times already in the letter. Six times Paul has addressed the arrogance of the Corinthians. For example, 1 Corinthians 8.1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up or makes arrogance. But love builds up. Love is not puffed up with an inflated sense of self. So when we begin to exert this and exhibit this overconfidence in ourselves, it's a sure indication that we're growing self-centered. And I know that the world teaches a, a completely contrary message on this one. The world's going to say an inflated sense of self is going to help you secure jobs. It's going to help you make friends. It's going to help you sell products. It's going to help you climb the ladder. And you need to know that's probably true. It probably will. But I promise you, it won't make you a more loving person. So pragmatically, just looking at what is it going to take to succeed in some ways, it may be true that becoming puffed up or having a great sense of yourself or maybe even a bigger sense of yourself than is really due, sometimes that may actually bring success, but it will not make you loving. Interesting. What's highest on your priority list? That'd be a good question to ask. What's highest on my priority list? Love is not arrogant because love is free from the tyranny of self. Love's actions are not caused by an inflated sense of self. That's not what creates a loving person. Self has to be dealt with. Number four, indication that we're being self-centered. Rather than being loving, we're exhibiting bad manners. That's interesting. Love is not rude. Love is not rude. This is just so interesting to me. Paul's mentioned this idea very specifically two places in the letter. He uses the exact same word in chapter 7, verse 36. Listen for it. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly, it's the same word, so it's just translated differently there. If anyone 
thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. Here's the other use of it, this time in the adjectival form. On those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts, it's the same word in its adjective form, our unpresentable parts, we are treated with greater modesty. And in both cases, the word conveys the idea of what's appropriate, what's socially appropriate, behaving properly and not revealing things that are unpresentable. Which means that love takes into consideration one's social conventions. And it acts in such a way as to show propriety. Love behaves properly. It shows good taste. It's courteous. Probably doesn't wear running shoes to preach in. I forgot to change these. I don't know. I did forget to... I hopped out of the car. I was like, no! No! Oh, it it tries to avoid unnecessary offense by doing what's fitting for the circumstances. It's not consumed with its own preferences. It isn't careless about how others are going to be impacted. It considers others, attempts to do things that will be for the good of others. The loving person isn't caught up in a world of his own. Considers others. Considers others in the church. Considers others in the home. It considers others in the neighborhood. Considers others on the road. Seriously. Considers others in the store. Love is not rude. Rudeness is sin. You should mark that category. Love's not rude. That's tough. Rudeness flows from a self-centered, inconsiderate mentality. But love is not rude because love is free from the tyranny of self. Self does not dictate how I am going to treat others. Self does not dictate me as a Christian. The fifth indication that we're growing self-centered is that we're exhibiting a demanding demeanor. Rather than love, we're exhibiting a demanding demeanor. Verse 5, love does not insist on its own way. Once again, I think it's pretty easy to see how this symptom arises from a self-centered person. We've talked about this before, but we all have a tendency to build up our are privatized kingdoms. I have ideas about how I envision this church, how I envision friendship, how I envision marriage, how I envision my vacation, how I envision the coming weekend. And if things don't go my way, you better watch out because I'm on a mission to build my kingdom. I have a way that I want things to go. And so do you. And we don't like it when somebody's comes in and starts to tell us what to do with our kingdom. Let me illustrate how I envisioned my 10th anniversary. It was on December 29th. Notice I did not say I celebrated my 10th anniversary on December 29th. Here's what I anticipated. Here's how I envisioned it. 
a, a two-day vacation in uh, Newport, Rhode Island. Just two days. That's all I'm asking. Dining, I imagined. Romance. Shopping. A road trip. That's how I envisioned. This is, this is pretty simple. And not too bad for a 10th anniversary. Here's what I did not anticipate. A hospitalized mother-in-law, i.e. babysitter, with a life-threatening situation. I did not envision cleaning up my child's vomit all night long. I did not envision cleaning the dog's diarrhea throughout the home. And I certainly didn't envision a canceled trip. I had a vision for a kingdom. Now let me ask you, what would love do when mom gets sick and the child gets sick and the dog gets sick? Well, let's leave the dog out of it. What would you what happens when mom gets sick, kids get sick, get the flu on your anniversary? Well, I'll tell you what love doesn't do. It doesn't insist on its own way. Now, it would have been a good idea for me to read this chapter before all of that happened because I didn't respond very well to it at all. I was mad. And what it displayed was the extent to which I was living with a self-centered mentality at that point. I want things to revolve around me and my kingdom and my desires. But love does not insist on its own way because love is free from the tyranny of self. Love's actions are not under the dictatorship of self and self's desires. Self does not call the shots for the loving person. Now, from what I've said so far, it may seem as though we are to give no thought (coughs) to our desires whatsoever. might sound like that would be an implication. As though we're to have no desire for our own success lest we become envious of others. Or as though we are to have no desire for affirmation lest we become boastful. Or we are to have no desire to view our contribution as worthy. In fact, maybe we should view our contribution as worthless lest we become arrogant. Or it might sound like we're saying that we're to care only about what others prefer lest we become rude. Have no preferences. Don't prefer anything could sound like we're saying that we are to have no dreams lest we become insistent upon our own way. But it's not what, that's not what Paul has said. And that's not what I have said. Paul doesn't say, love has no personal desire. He didn't say that. And he didn't say, love has no interest in its own good. All of these actions, envy, boasting, arrogance, rudeness, and insistence, reflect not merely healthy desires for one, one's own good. What they reflect is self-centeredness. The demand that my desires be fulfilled at any cost, at every cost, There's a world of difference between living in this world with healthy desires for good things and being self-centered. 
There's nothing necessarily wrong with wanting a certain type of success. For example, a good education for your kids. Or maybe a spouse, for those of you who are single. Or maybe wanting a job in a tough economy. There's nothing necessarily wrong with wanting a certain type of affirmation. A child wanting the affirmation of their father. Or a wife wanting the affirmation of her husband, vice versa. An employee wanting affirmation from his boss. There's nothing necessarily wrong with wanting to play a valuable role and wanting to feel like your contribution is important to the life of the church or, or, or in the workplace. There's nothing necessarily wrong with having your own preferences. I like some things. I don't like other things. Nothing necessarily wrong with that. There's nothing necessarily wrong with having a dream and pursuing it and making choices that will take you there. Not necessarily. The problem is when our lives are centered, centered around the desire for success, centered around the desire for affirmation, centered around a desire for personal value, centered around a desire for my preferences, centered around my dreams. When we put these things at the center of our lives, we enthrone them in the place that belongs to God alone. And that means that they have become more, at that point, than reasonable, healthy desires. They have become tyrants. They have become masters. They have become gods. And we have become worshipers and slaves of our own selves and of our own desires. We find ourselves living then in the idolatrous service of the pursuit of our own success. An idolatrous pursuit of affirmation, of personal value, of preferences, and of dreams. Idolatrous, because we want them at any cost. So how can you spot an idolatrous desire? How can you see if your desire for a good thing like a spouse, or your desire for a good thing like success, or desire for a good thing like affirmation, how can you see if that has turned into an idol? If it is mastering you? If you are worshiping it? Well, here's one way. You'll know that you're being mastered if you're willing to do things that God does not want you to do in order to pursue your desire. Your life is full of envy. Your life is full of rudeness. Your life is full of arrogance, boasting, insistence. You're willing to do things that aren't loving in order to ensure that you can have what you want. It means you're being mastered by that desire. You're being ruled by that desire. And the devil is going to tempt you to think that the only way to have your desires fulfilled is to take it into your own hands. The devil will tempt you to think that these desires that you have will not be fulfilled unless you indulge the flesh and go after it. You go off course. You do something that you know that the Lord doesn't want you to do. You compromise some value in order to get what you want. You compromise something that you know that 
the Lord clearly doesn't want you to do. The devil will say, you cannot trust God with your desires. He will never let you have them. And with the devil, there's always enough truth to make it sound real good. Because we all know that if we submit our desires to God, there's a possibility that he may not grant them, right? You know that. It's a scary thing to put your life into the hands of God, especially when you've got big desires on the line. You're going to trust him with those things? And we know, we know, if he does not grant the desire, we know it's for our good. But it's hard and scary to put your life into the hands of the Lord and to lay your desires down on the altar, your desire for success, a certain desire that you have for what you imagine your children being when they grow up, a certain desire that you have for what you want your life to look like, a certain desire for where you're going to live and what your preferences will be, and you, you name it. You know, People in this room have all kinds of desires. I have desires in my life. Are you willing to lay it on the altar? before the Lord, and say, Lord, deal with me according to your loving kindness. The question that we have to ask ourselves at that moment is what's at the center of my universe? Is it self and the desires of self? Or is it Jesus? And if our lives revolve around self, revolve around our desires, revolve around our dreams, revolve around our preferences, then those things have become idols. And that's what kills our ability to love others. Because in order to love others, you know what you're going to have to do from time to time? You're going to have to sacrifice self. You're going to have to lay down preferences. You're going to have to lay down dreams. And we'll never be able to do it if self is what lies at the center of the universe. If self is what you're living for. So how do you break free? How do you break free from the tyranny of self? How can we defeat self-centeredness and subordinate our dreams and subordinate our preferences so they do not rule as gods over us. There's only one way. You got to die. You have to die. Self has to be brought to an end. Self has to be destroyed. Because you see, we can't just make up our minds to be different. And just make up our minds to Love something more than we love ourselves. In our natural state, we're bound to live into, in, in subjection to our sinful nature. We are, Paul says, slaves to sin. And in order to bring our slavery to sin to an end, we have to die. And we have to be born again. And praise be to God, there's a way for that to happen. And his name is Jesus. Amen. Jesus died a death that can count for us before God. So that our sinful, selfish person can be counted as dead before God by means of a substitutionary death on our behalf. His death can count for your death. So that self can be before God presented as dead. 
And when we put our hope in Jesus Christ, God does something magical. He unites us to Jesus so that we are counted as crucified with Christ. And then God gives a new birth to us. He implants a new impulse into our hearts. We are experiencing the reality of someone who is dead brought back to life. We're experiencing resurrection, new life, new birth. That impulse in our hearts is stronger than than the power of sin that used to rule us so that in our everyday lives we can continually begin and grow in our abilities to say no to self in ways that we never could before. Why? Because we have died and we have rose again in Christ. Resurrection is at work in our lives through the presence of the Holy Spirit. We know, Paul says, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The slavery has been broken. Romans 6.13 says, Present yourselves to God as those who have been, have been brought from death to life. Before God. Right now. Christian. You're on the other side of death. Sin is not your master. Jesus is. So we can live differently because Christ has done this for us. We can live like people who have really died and have come to life. And if you have been crucified with Christ and born again, then you can put self to death. You can increasingly say no to, to, to self when self tries to play the dictator, which means that God has given you the crucial fuel now to enable you to love other people. You've been freed so that you don't have to be ruled by selfish desires. And if you're not ruled under the tyranny, under the slavery of selfish desires, then your desire for success doesn't have to turn into envy. It doesn't have to. Your desire for affirmation doesn't have to turn into boasting. You don't need it. Your desire to play a valuable role doesn't have to turn into arrogance because you're not mastered by the need to be valuable. Your desire for preferences doesn't have to turn into rudeness because you're not under the tyranny of self that says you've got to have it your way. To which you say, no, I don't. I don't. Your desire for your dreams doesn't have to turn into an an insistence on your ways because you're free from the tyranny of self. You don't live in the service of yourself anymore. You live in the service of Jesus Christ. Because you're not a slave to yourself, you're free to care not only about your own desires, but about the good of others. You're free to love others. You're free to serve others. Because the old you doesn't call the shots anymore. It's a beautiful thing to be dead. A beautiful thing to be dead. There's a great passage. I'm going to just turn to it. You can turn with me as well. Philippians. <coughs> it captures this. Philippians chapter 2. I intentionally didn't mark my page so that I, you would have time to turn there. As I was turning there. <coughs> Philippians tap, chapter 2. Starting in verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, 
But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it was through that death on the cross, in loving service to you and me, that Jesus paid the penalty for our failure to love this week. Or this morning, perhaps. He took the consummated wrath of God store up, stored up for us because of our self-centeredness. He took it on His own shoulders for us. And though He had every right to pursue His own success and demand our affirmation and promote His own eternal worth and demand His preferences and pursue His dreams, He nevertheless looked not only to His own interests but also to the interests of others. And when Jesus saw that the pursuit of His own well-being would mean the loss of our souls, He did what only love could do. He surrendered himself so that we could live that's what love does it's not envious not boastful it's not arrogant it's not rude it doesn't demand its own way let's pray jesus what you have done for us Your love for us. Your selfless love for us is awesome because you've not only taken away the penalty. We talk about these things this morning and as our hearts are convicted perhaps, the cross not only takes away the penalty, the the wrath, the judgment that we deserve and we're probably aware of at some level. But the cross also allows us to participate in the death and resurrection. So that we are a people who are experiencing now freedom from the tyranny of an old slave master called sin. And how sin just stirred up selfishness and self-centeredness. And even though we're still battling with these things, Lord, You have cut, You have severed the powerhouse that kept us in slavery because we have died with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul said it. It is no longer I who live. Lord, we want to be a people who are able to submit our will to Your will. And that's a miracle. Would you help us who have been crucified with Christ to put to death now the deeds of the flesh. To put to death selfishness. This week, Lord, because of what you've done at Calvary and because of the gift of your Spirit, would you give your people this week a greater ability 
to say no to self, no to sin, to walk in the fullness of life that You intend for us as we live as resurrected people. We have the first fruits of the resurrection alive in us. Change us, Lord, and make us more loving. For we, Your people, pray these things in Jesus' name.